Welcome to the Michigan Opportunity, an economic development podcast featuring candid conversations with business leaders across Michigan. You'll hear firsthand accounts from Michigan business leaders and innovators about how the state is driving job growth and business investment, supporting a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem, building vibrant communities, and helping to attract and retain one of the most diverse and significant workforces in the nation. Hello, I'm Ed Clementi, your host, and today we're fortunate to have Rich Bowman. He's the Director of Policy at the Nature Conservancy in Michigan. Sorry about stumbling over the Nature Conservancy, but I'm sure that uh, you're going to mention it about 10 more times, but go ahead. At least. (laughs) (laughs) So welcome to the show, Rich. Thanks, Ed. Glad to be here. And what do you tell people, I mean, everyone's sort of heard of the Nature Conservancy, but why don't you tell people what you tell them quickly when you hear it? Sure. 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 You know, the um, I often tell folks that the Nature Conservancy is the organization that everybody's heard of and nobody, almost nobody knows what we actually do. So <laughs> we are um, the largest conservation organization in the world. Our, um, we work in all 50 states and about 70 foreign countries. We have roughly 4,000 staff and about a billion dollar a year budget. Those are very round numbers. Um, that seems pretty big, although to put it into perspective, that's about equivalent to in the state of Michigan. If you combine Eagle and the Department of Natural Resources and the Department of Ag and Rural Development, you'd be at about those same numbers. So um, we use those folks that much resources in the state of Michigan to manage our resources and at the Nature Conservancy we take the same amount of resources and try to spread it across the world. So while we're big, we um, are still small enough to be able to be nimble. Here in Michigan, we've got about 60 staff. We have, um, over the years, probably been involved since the 1960s in um, probably 500 land transactions. We actually don't own most of that land. A lot of it we've helped public entities or private nonprofits acquire land for conservation purposes. You know, some of the recent projects that we've done that folks might be aware of is the, we helped the community with the Saugatuck natural area on the south side of the Kalamazoo River on Lake Michigan. We helped Ludington with a large recreation area on the south side of Pierre Marquette Lake. We've um, helped Um, the state of Michigan and the Forest Service acquire places like the Silver Mountain Outlook in um, southern Keweenaw County and some beaches on Lake Superior. So we are primarily in the land business. We own and manage 33 nature preserves and four large footprint working forests in Michigan right now that total about 100,000 acres. Um, So wait a minute. When you say you own... The Nature Conservancy is a nonprofit, right? Yeah, I presume. Yes. So, what do you, when you own, you mean you manage, or do you actually own the land too? We both. So we own it and we manage it. Now, some oh, okay. of those are are um, nature um, preserves, like our um, Pawpaw Nature Preserve just west of Kalamazoo, or our Sharon Hollow Nature Preserve um, northwest of the city of Ann Arbor. Um, the one that um, is more recent for us that's of the most interest is we have four 
large footprint, what we call forest reserves in the Upper Peninsula um, in Luceberga and Keweenaw County. We manage those as working forests. We actually leave them on the tax rolls and pay property taxes, even though we're a nonprofit. But what we're trying to do is help the entire forest industry figure out ways to manage those forests better. So we use um, commercial scale harvesting techniques and management techniques, but we use them in different ways to try to improve the health and diversity of the forest. Maybe not make as much money as you would if you were just trying to make a lot of money, but we still try to make it a little bit profitable because most forest landowners need to make enough money to pay their taxes and pay their mortgage and do things like that. So those are very exciting for us. The most recent one, we just finished the acquisition less than a year ago. We purchased 32,641 acres in the tip of the Keweenaw Peninsula and um, are now working with the DNR and with the local community over the next few years to actually move pretty much all of that land into public ownership. So is that, is there, um, and maybe you could help out the audience. Let's do a little yes. bit of this, but so there, I know a little bit of this from my legislative days, but uh, so there's state forests and then there's national forests. And I think my number, at least the last number I read, Michigan's about 50% forested, right? Yep. Yep. Roughly 18 million acres. And it, it actually breaks down of that 18 million, half of it is owned by what are basically small individual landowners that might own 40, 80, up to four or 500 acres. People's woodlots, people's hunting camps, all that's 50% of that 18 million acres. About 4 million is in the state forest system owned and managed by the state. A little more than 2 million is in the um, federal system, probably closer to 2.5 million in the the um, national forests, the Ottawa and the Western UP, the Hiawatha and the Central and Eastern UP, and the Huron-Manistee and the Northern, or yeah, the Huron-Manistee and the Northern Lower Peninsula. And then there are several million acres, which are referred to as industrial forest land that are actually owned by um, usually corporate entities. And those are large footprint ownerships. You know, historically, folks like um, Ford Motor Company and the Burlington Northern Railroad and Cleveland Cliffs, companies like that own those industrial forest lands. Today, with changes in structures of ownership, almost all of those are actually owned by private equity firms. And is that a good thing or is that like something that's still up for? it's, it's, It's open for discussion. I think that Um, Those private equity firms, some of them do a very good job of managing that land. I think there are a couple challenges that happen with private equity that were different from the earlier industrial owners. The first one is that um, they, for the earlier owners, their goal was usually to make sure they had a good supply of timber. And frankly, when that when timber prices were cheap, they bought other people's timber. And when timber prices were high, they used their own timber and it gave them some supply risk management. The um, Timos are just in the business of maximizing the value of their investment. So if the land is worth more, 
sold to somebody than it is kept as timberland, they will sell it. If it's um, worth more to sell carbon on it than it is to sell timber, they'll consider selling carbon. And if they need to, they will manage really aggressively in order to make their um, investment targets, because frankly, they're investing other people's money. And if they don't earn the returns, those people take their money away and give it to somebody else. The biggest thing that may really be problematic is the fact that most of those private equity funds are located in places other than Michigan. And that means the profits that they earn don't necessarily accrue to us in our communities here in Michigan. So that's why when I mentioned that 32,600 acres in the Keweenaw Peninsula, we bought that from an investment firm that had put it up for sale. And we are trying to structure a mechanism that allows the community to benefit a little bit more from that forest than they have in the past. You're listening to The Michigan Opportunity featuring candid conversations with Michigan business leaders on what makes Michigan a leading state to live, work, and play. Listen to more episodes at michiganbusiness.org forward slash podcast. How did the Nature Conservancy even start? I mean, is it based in the United States? Is it because it's a global entity, right? Yeah, it's based in the United States. It actually grew out of... um, a scientific society, the ecological society, and it grew like so many new organizations um, out of a disagreement among the members of the current organization. So the the um, ecological society of America was like any other professional scientific society, all the scientists that studied ecology. And one of the arguments was they knew that we were losing rare and unique landscapes. And there were a number of members who said, it's not good enough to just study these and have them go away. We need to actually create something to protect them and make sure they don't go away. And so in 1951, I believe, a group of those primarily scientists formed the Nature Conservancy originally just to identify and and buy small, unique nature preserves. The thing that really changed for us, and it's part of the reason I came to the Nature Conservancy 17 years ago, was that you can do a lot of really good things, buying and protecting um, small patches of nature, especially unique stuff in nature preserves. But if all the world around that nature preserve is changing and degrading, pretty soon that nature preserve that little footprint won't be viable. And so we still do nature preserves as one of our core businesses, but we also work with the folks who are managing the broader landscape, the farmers, the foresters, the folks doing urban water infrastructure to help them do a better job of managing so that the entire environment is healthy and functional so that those um, special places can continue to survive and thrive. And I appreciate that sort of history because I've always heard of it, but I just didn't know how mm-hmm. it started. And and it's it's something I'm actually very interested in, even when I was in the legislature. I, I remember I brought in the Michigan Mountain Bike Association. Yep. But I, I do remember one time the DNR testifying in one of my committees that um, the reason we have so many forests is because of hunters. 
because of all the money that's raised through licensing. Uh, it's well, it's a, it's a little bit. It's actually a more interesting story than that. Oh, good. There's, Go ahead. Yeah, there's a there's a publication. It's out of print. It was written in the 19, in 1942, I believe, by a professor at Michigan State named Harold Titus, which were who Harold was one of the early and larger than life forestry experts in the U.S. And the title of the publication he wrote is The Land That Nobody Wanted. And we all have heard the story in Michigan in the late 19th century of the white pine and and kind of cutting down all of the forests of northern Michigan and the Upper Peninsula and how um, for years after that we had real challenges, lots of forest fires. We tried to farm it, but it wasn't very good for farming. And the policy of the state of Michigan, and as a former legislature legislator, you will appreciate this, from the about 1880 to World War I, the policy of, of the state of Michigan was we wanted to get all of the land into private ownership because we funded government through property taxes, and if somebody didn't own it, they couldn't pay taxes on it. We had all these lands through northern Michigan that had been cut over, burned over, tried to be farmed, abandoned as farmland. And what happened was um, basically prospectors or people looking to make a quick buck would buy these lands for pennies on an acre, send somebody out there to look at them, see if there was anything they could take off them, never pay for them and never pay the taxes on them. And after four years, they'd come back to the state. And the land office of the state of Michigan in that time period sold over a, a hundred million acres of land, which is quite a trick given that Michigan's only 38 million acres. And what, <laughs> they were, and what they were doing was they were selling roughly the same 6 million acres over and over and over again. And that was when the legislature at that point in time said, well, this isn't working, is it? And they created the Michigan Forestry Commission, which eventually became the um, Department of Conservation, known today as the Department of Natural Resources. And they did what I tell folks, I believe, is the most successful brownfield redevelopment project in the state of Michigan's history, because they took 4 million acres of cut over, burnt over wasteland that was in an environmental problem and an economic drain on the state of Michigan. And over the course of the last century, little more than a century now, they reforested it. They made it healthy. They made it into a productive place where all of us love to go. What percentage do you think our state was? How far down was it at one point? You think like in the 10% or 20? Yeah, maybe? probably, probably. Wow. It was, it was, Things where I don't think we appreciate today, you know, you go up north and and I ha will have folks tell me how much they love the pristine forests of northern Michigan. And I love the pristine forests of northern Michigan, too, but they are a forest that was that is there and thrives today because of deliberate policy choices by the leadership of Michigan. I used to drive, I'm old enough that I used to drive the, it's called the Cine Stretch. Yep. And, you know, it's from, I can't remember the two cities, but it ends up in Cine. I think yes. it's from Newberry or something. Yeah, and um, it's, it's M28 going from Munich yeah. to eventually and, Newberry. 
and we used to go up there in the winter even. And, but because there were so many stumps, we used to call it the stump graveyard because there was nothing but massive tree stumps. And the, it was the worst stretch of road to drive on during the winter because of the (laughs) drifts, because there was no breaks in anywhere for miles. And, uh, and I'm so happy when I go up there now and see it and, you know, it's so much better. And it doesn't, mean and this is what we have to be really careful of it doesn't mean just because a forest will grow back and we can make it healthy let's not repeat what we did in the 19th century let's do a better job of managing them going forward and by and large we do and they're a great asset because you can have recreation you can have a forest products industry you can have a tax base to support local communities and you can have jobs if you do it right. Well, you know, one thing I will say, I looked this up once that, and and I have a lot of friends in Ohio, but I guess Ohio used to be like 80, 90% forested too or yes. something. Yes. And pretty much, so if, yeah, pretty much it just the, the Southern part, continental U S East of um, roughly the Indiana, Illinois um, border today, was forested. That was the primary land cover. There were certainly pockets of of prairies throughout that entire area, but it really was not until you got to um, to Illinois, far western Kentucky, pretty close to the Mississippi River, that you got into the the um, the prairies and then into the Great Plains, the grasslands of the central part of the country. Yeah, yeah. Michigan was ninety five percent forested before settlement. Yeah, I know. I get so nervous when I read that. And I'm always because just a couple of things and just a couple of last questions for you. But um, how do you see recreation or the economic side of preserving this, too? How does that benefit Michigan for talent attraction or things like that? So obviously, people love to come here to play. And if we can put the other things in place that go along with that. Um, they can, it's a great way to um, draw population to get them to stay. I know that's part of what the governor's growth commission is going to be talking about. I, um, one of our challenges, you know, that story about the lands and the facts, fact that our um, government was funded primarily by property taxes and local government still is largely funded by property taxes we have to continuously adjust how we fund public services as the nature of our economy changes. So you mentioned hunters and fishers, and I didn't want in any way disparage them. Hunting and fishing licenses provide the stream of revenue that the agencies use to manage these resources well to this day, and they're really important for that. One of the things we've got to figure out with our visitor economy is that when you go someplace to mountain bike and you fall off and get hurt, you really expect the local um, EMS services to come and help you out. And they do come and help you out, but those are paid for completely by the local property taxes. And we haven't yet figured out that policy mechanism to allow folks to help pay for that. You know, we've got it in some private places. Probably the best example is, you know, when you go to a, to go skiing, 
you buy a lift ticket and there's a ski patrol there and they've sort of figured out a mechanism at that private level for both paying for the recreational activity through the lift ticket and having the mechanism to help you when you hurt yourself. We've got to do this. We've done that to some extent. We've done it to a great extent. I shouldn't say some extent. We have a really outstanding program for snowmobile, some snowmobile trails in Michigan through the trail permit sticker. We have a really good program for off-road vehicles. We have a really good program for our larger watercraft through the watercraft registration. We've got a bunch of new forms of recreation that nobody would have even thought of 25 years ago, like mountain biking, like everybody and their brother has a plastic kayak now, I think. And we haven't developed the revenue mechanism yet to go along with those to help those recreational users pay for the services they demand. So this will be your last question. I think yeah. I'm not going to ask you your favorite spot because I don't want you to tell anybody. Um, the uh, What would you, just knowing your career, what would you tell your 17-year-old self to go into? Because, you know, I, I think Michigan has a lot of unique opportunities that you probably are comfortable with, I would think. Yeah, it's, I would, um, I would tell my um, 17-year-old self to um, make sure I went and did what I um, loved and found satisfaction in and, and felt like I could make a contribution in. I, um, you know, when I got, I thought I was going to be a farmer when I grew up. I came from, I come from a family of farmers in Southern Michigan. And, um, and um, when I graduated from Michigan State with a degree in agricultural economics, I managed a Farmer Jack supermarket in Southeast Michigan for a couple <laughs> of years. And, um, and I ultimately ended up in a career in conservation. I do think the one thing that's important is in my entire almost 40 year career now, Every job I've had except one, somebody came and said, hey, we'd like to have you work with us or join what we're doing. I didn't apply for them. And I tell young people, build that network, get to know people, because if you are smart, if you're intellectually curious, if you're ambitious, once people know you're out there, they'll come looking for you. Yeah, no, no, no. It's good advice. And um, well... Sorry, I didn't get to all the questions, but maybe we'll get you back in the future I'll be happy here. To come back. Yeah, no, I and and I'm gonna look forward to maybe working with you offline too a little bit. I, I really like what you guys do there. Um, and it, once again, our guest was Rich Bowman. He's the director of policy at the Nature Conservancy here in Michigan. Thanks again, Rich. Keep up the good work. At all you guys do there, we appreciate it. Thanks, Ed. Join us next week, where our guest will be Carrie Dugan. She is the founder and CEO of Sustainability. The Michigan Opportunity is brought to you by the Michigan Economic Development Corporation. Join us and make your mark where it matters. Visit michiganbusiness.org forward slash radio to put your plans in motion.